Welcome to the Midwest Football Podcast, episode 42. It's January 30th, 2024. It's hard to get that energy up after the NFC title game, but, you know, here we are, because the only thing worse than our NFC prediction was the weather prediction for today in Detroit. We will definitely break down the NFC title game later on this Lions-heavy show, but don't worry, we're still going to cover most of the Midwest teams, the Bears, Bengals, Browns, Colts, Lions, Packers, Steelers, and Vikings. I'm Joe Smith, still a Lions fan and still proud of my team. With me, as always, is my friend and broadcast partner, a man who left surprise blizzards behind in his Chicago hometown, Brian Rosenquist. Hello, Midwest Landers and friends. I'm coming to you on a somber Tuesday night because I'm a little bummed out from the results of the games. Not what you're thinking, but I was kind of hoping the Chiefs would lose and then Taylor Swift would be supporting her boyfriend, Kelsey, at the Pro Bowl because I got Pro Bowl tickets for the uh, game in Orlando today. They're so cheap. I haven't spent this little money since uh, going to a half-price ticket Tuesday at the old Comiskey Park in Chicago where they basically <laughs> are just giving away tickets to make it look like people care about the Pro Bowl flag football game. And that is not a joke. It is a flag football game and i was really bummed out when i found out that uh I, when i realized well i already knew it but i confirmed that i'm on ross st brown and dj moore are not pro bowlers so i probably won't get to meet them there even if there is good fan interaction false i'm on ross st brown is the replacement for aj brown in for injury so he will be there as will by the way this just broke today uh jameer gibbs who replaces christian mccaffrey who is going to be in the Super Bowl. Oh, okay. Well, the good news for me is, uh, well, we'll find out, because I have my Amar Ross St. Brown jersey on order despite the loss. We'll get to that later. Um, hopefully, I'll get in there in time. Maybe I'll get it autographed. Knock on wood. That's my hope for uh, set this Sunday. All right. If you like the show, help our podcast grow by giving us five-star review, commenting, sharing us to your social media accounts, recommending us contacting us via our email if you want to get involved with the show or just tell Brian he's a traitor for putting on a Detroit Lions jersey. It really is important. So thank you, uh, especially this particular week uh, as we enter our season finale here and we you know consider some possible format changes for next year. But for right now, we're going to give you the same exact, not exact because it's a little different every time, we're going to give you the same format that you love here. We're going to break down the games that matter for the Midwest teams. And we're also going to hit some news, which mostly this week features all of the coaching stories that are coming up here, including let's start with the big one, especially here in the Midwest, because there's college football implications too, that we're not going to talk about. And that is the chargers giving Jim Harbaugh the whole boat. Yeah, so Jim Harbaugh coming back to the pros is not a surprise for anybody. It, it was kind of interesting watching him at the uh, AFC Championship game, watching his brother play, knowing that the last time he coached in the NFL, he played against his brother in the Super Bowl, which was almost a rematch of the Ravens-Niners, which was, I believe, 2013, so 11 years ago. And it's kind of crazy to think that Jim Harbaugh is now going on his third team coaching while his brother is still in Baltimore. <laughs> But he was counting college and pro. Yeah. I mean, the Niners, Michigan, and now the Chargers. And it's kind of crazy to think because he has a reputation for bouncing around a lot, but he was at Michigan for nine years. That's not exactly bouncing around. He was there for a while. So 
you know, he might be there for a while. And uh, he had instant success with the Niners. They went to three straight NFC championship games, much like this current iteration of the Niners. And then he had a winning record the fourth year when they said they were going to move on from him. And then they lost their last four games. I don't count those because I think the lame duck stuff. But the point is, he has a ridiculously high NFL winning percentage, like 78% or something like that. And uh, I think it's a good hire. I think it's finally going to be a coach that might give the chiefs a run for their money after they're coming off their six straight NFC or AFC championship game appearance. And as well as six straight division titles. So um, I I think uh, it was a good coaching hire for them. Yeah. uh, Jim Harbaugh has, you're absolutely right, because I looked it up, the highest winning percentage of any non-interim coach in NFL history, period. And when he was kind of still looking, I figured, okay, there's a bunch of things that Jim Harbaugh is going to have to have in order to leave the cushy job at Michigan. He was going to have to get big pay. He was going to have to get control over the roster. And he got it all. He got the whole boat here. Mm-hmm. He's going to hire his own GM in Los Angeles. Having Justin Herbert helps being in LA where they're, it's not nearly as intensive a spot, like where you must win 80, but 90% of your games will be nice for him too. Um, and just as a side note, while I'm being a trader, I'm happy that I can finally root for him again. Cause he's no longer the Michigan head coach. The Buckeye in me is happy with that. Uh, the bears fan in me who grew up watching him play quarterback for Chicago is happy that I can now support him. Like I used to, when he was a Niners head coach, not, but I could not for the last nine years while I'm being a trader. I just want to add that I am wearing a Justin Fields Jersey to the pro bowl. I'm just hoping to swap them out. If I run into the sun god (laughs) (laughs) you have that in the back pocket the the star of my dynasty dynasty mr st brown so very nice there the college implications are an entire different thing that we're not going to get into because we're an nfl podcast but i gotta believe that this is certainly the biggest splash hire for the chargers you definitely hope that he is going to take their quarterback. He's a quarterback whisperer and get them back on the right foot. We'll see how long it takes to fix their cap situation, but that's an off season discussion. Another big uh, head coaching hire that I actually really liked was Dave Canellis to Carolina. Uh, he had formerly the Tampa Bay offensive coordinator. He was there long enough for a cup of coffee. He made his money in the NFL and his reputation as the offensive coordinator, quarterbacks, coach, offensive guru, passing game coordinator in Seattle, most of that time with Russell Wilson. So what do you think about this one, Brian? While you're talking about that, was he the same guy that was there last year during Geno Smith's good year, the transition year? Uh, He was there in... Uh, he was only in Tampa for 2023. So he okay, was so in he... Seattle from 2010 all the way to 2022 as either quarterbacks coach. Actually, most of that he was wide receivers coach. Okay. 2010 well, to 2017. So th- this confirms what I thought. So I, I remember, so he basically was there when they took Russell Wilson before he was a future Hall of Famer, Super Bowl champion. He was just a third round pick that, beat out big money free agent Matt Flynn name to remember um, developed helped develop him 
And then when they got rid of him, they helped develop and resurrect uh, Geno Smith's career two years ago. And then last year in Tampa, in one year, he basically helped resurrect uh, Baker Mayfield. <laughs> Remember, these were two teams in a row where people were literally selling on the receivers in Seattle two years ago and Tampa last year because they thought the quarterback play was going to be so awful. Both of those teams ended up with winning records and making the playoffs. And even the Tampa Bay Buccaneers won a playoff game last year. And I think that this is an underrated hire because he's done a good job reclaiming little to little guy, uh, little to unknown people like Russell Wilson or reclaiming careers like Gino and Baker. And he might have to reclaim another one with uh, Bryce Young. And he might be he might be the one guy up for the challenge. Absolutely. I absolutely love this coach's resume. And as much as we've talked down on Carolina Panthers, it's hard to imagine an offensive coordinator with a as bright of a future or brighter. I mean, I can think of one, but we'll talk about him later. Moving on and staying within division, the Atlanta Falcons have hired former Rams defensive coordinator Raheem Morris, who, keeping within the NFC South, used to be the Tampa Bay Bucks head coach and even was the uh, Falcons defensive coordinator for a stint, including an interim cut coaching uh, stint for a little bit. He's a controversial hire because they were, he was the engineer behind that Rams defense that won the Super Bowl a few years ago with Matt Stafford at the helm. But he's also has a terrible head coaching record in Tampa Bay. I believe he had uh Josh Freeman era, <laughs> or maybe it was the the era that led up to Jameis Winston, <laughs> like with uh, Mike Lennon. And he was like a 33, 32 year old head coach. So he didn't have a great record, even as an interim. I don't want to hold that against him. He's a young mind that's very sharp. And I think that his first head coaching job, I think he might've just been over his head. And I don't think, and that was way back in 2009. <laughs> so, he, I think he's earned another uh, shot at the helm, in my opinion, despite his, uh, quote, overall head coaching record. You can't see me doing air quotes um, with Tampa and even as an interim in Atlanta. Those didn't have good rosters. And he was very young at the time. Yeah, that's exactly what I was about to get at. Where His head coaching record was Tampa Bay in 9, 10, 11 and an interim job with Atlanta in 2020. And all of those teams, except for the Tampa team in the middle that went 10 and six and still was third in the division, was the other three of those four teams were just train wrecks where he was he was there. But I don't care who you put in there. They weren't winning. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Uh, So Atlanta kind of bucks the trend here. They went with more of a defensive coach. Yeah, the defensive hiring the defensive coordinator under Sean McVay's Rams, you know, that worked so well for the Chargers. I definitely hope it works better for the Falcons here. Um, because they've got some nice talent. Mm-hmm. I gotta believe that they're gonna find an offensive coordinator that can use all of the elite pieces that they've drafted over the last couple of years better than you know the guy they just got rid of. That's really the coaching hires that we have right now. There's, I'm going to just come out and say it's a complete non-story in Pittsburgh, despite what some of the vocal minority on the internet has to say. Mike Tomlin has said he wants to come back. Uh, the Roonies have said they want him back, and they intend to extend him. It's a matter of time and dollars. 
this is not a story. All right, so that leaves us just two head coaching positions that remain unfilled, Washington, uh, the Commanders, and Seattle. We'll talk a little bit more about the Washington job because we have some interesting stuff going on it a little bit later where it fits naturally. But we also wanted to talk about the AFC Championship game, which broke down the uh, the early game, the matinee this past Sunday between Kansas City and Baltimore. Yeah, so that was a game where Kansas City got out to a quick 14 to 7 lead and then channeled their inner early Tom Brady Belichick Super Bowl era Patriots by making the game as boring to watch as humanly possible as Pat Mahomes led unscoring drive after unscoring drive that chewed up the clock and slowly got Baltimore to panic more and more as uh resulting in you could feel the panic and 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 uh Pressure getting to Lamar as he heave-hoed a triple cover interception late in the game, down only 10, but it felt insurmountable. What do you call those uh, blowouts, uh, defensive blowouts? Yeah, where you never feel like the team on the downside is even in it, even though the score says they're five minutes, a good five minutes away from taking the lead. Yeah, because my, my take watching that game was, when they were down 10 in that thir- late third quarter and beyond, it felt like every time the Baltimore Ravens had the ball, if they didn't score, there was going to be eight minutes ran off the clock by the Chiefs. And then they would, and it just felt, you could just feel the desperation and you could see why they really got, uh, in their own head because this is a team that led the team NFL and and rushing and they had 20 to 30 carries in most games. They had six carries to the running backs this week, including three carries on first down for 17 yards. They were effective when they ran it and the chiefs had a bottom five run defense. So that to me, Todd Monk and the offensive coordinator is an underscored villain. I believe Lamar Jackson's getting most of the blame, but he made some big plays and it wasn't him that fumbled the ball going to the end zone. That was uh, Zay Flowers or as he was, my comp was uh, a better version of Kadarius Tony. And he lived up to every bit of that on one drive, catching a 50 yard pass, getting called for <laughs> taunting. He literally taunted four times on that play. So I don't want to hear anybody complaining about taunting calling the NFL. That was overly excessive. In my opinion, he, he shoved him on the ground stood over him, spun the football, and then tapped his head. That's four separate taunts in a three-second span. They move him back 14, 15 yards from that penalty. Because they only a, called the one. Exactly. He still makes a big play, and as he's running into the end zone, gets the ball punched out on the one-yard line and somehow also hurts his hand, which, if you remember, Tony was known as a head case, explosive playmaker, and always injured. And Zay Flowers pulled that all off in one massive drive. And it was kind of glorious to see him do that with Kadarius Tony sidelined on the other side of the field. So he couldn't hurt his team. <laughs> can, you, can you match my season in a minute and a half? Go. <laughs> exactly. So um, it was yeah. just interesting. Look, the, this was a better matchup for the Chiefs defense versus the Baltimore offense than I think a lot of people figured. Because secretly the strength of these this chief's defense is their cornerbacks they are really really good at locking people down and the baltimore ravens don't have an alpha receiver so that that plus that means all kinds of free bodies to run at lamar and get him to run sideways 
and clog the rushing lanes in general, which scared him off. And I want to point out that one of the reasons why their cornerback play was so well, the Tyreek Hill trade that is much lauded, or lauded is that right word, uh, controversial because they don't have a great pass catcher in Kansas City. They picked up... Other than Kelsey. Yeah. They picked up Trent McDuffie at cornerback with one of those picks. I believe it was the second rounder. And they got George Karloftis, the defensive end, who's probably their best outside pass rusher in that draft. So you don't see it because most times they try to go like Justin Jefferson for Stefan Diggs or something. But in this case, they literally turned Tyreek Hill into two defensive playmakers that helped them get back to the Super Bowl two years in a row. So they just completely pivoted uh, how they played. But it's still a win-win in my opinion in that trade because Tyreek Hill has been great in Miami and Miami has been better for it. And I think the chiefs have not lost a beat. They just are not as fun to watch from a aesthetics yeah. standpoint. Yeah. They channeled their inner bill Belichick. This was a game that Lamar Jackson need. This was a legacy game for Jackson. Mm. And at this point, unless there's a dramatic turnaround, really the, the Ravens are su- such a complete team. I really believe they were a better roster but they didn't have two absolutely crucial elements of their offense. They didn't have a running back that mattered. Well, not since all of theirs died in week one. And they didn't have that alpha receiver to, you know, draw coverage away from anybody else. The closest they have to that is Andrews, and he was clearly not 100%, though he did play in the game. It was his first game back from major injury, for those who aren't familiar with it and he's their best pass catcher like the chiefs <laughs> they're kind of set up to run through their tight end i mean i really feel like baltimore could very easily be back next year we know how well run of an organization they are we know the talent on that team but it right now it looks really bad especially for lamar because you know as i've said many times quarterbacks get disproportionate credit and disproportionate blame well, it's especially bad because he I believe he's about to get crowned his second NF or his second MVP. I don't know if they've announced that yet. If they have, I haven't been paying attention. But I know he was the overwhelming front runner for regular season MVP. Looked great crushing the Texans, but then ran into a buzzsaw in Kansas City. And then you, it it, it kind of reminds me of like people going against Jordan in the '90s, where you know Malone, Malone and uh, Barkley get the MVP, and Jordan goes. Yeah, that's my trophy. <laughs> Proves it head to head. And that's kind of what Mahomes did to Lamar. Yeah, I mean, the media is going off the deep end like they always do. So we try to keep it more analytical. And speaking of analysis, let's get on over to the NFC Championship game, which we're really going to break down here. Uh, Lions at Niners. This was an absolute tale of two halves. Uh, first of all, Let's talk. I want to mention a little bit about injuries and set the stage here because we had Jonah Jackson, the starting left guard out for the Lions, and he is a difference maker on that team. Um, You had Laporta, who did play. There were rumors that he was going to be out or rumblings and scattered reports, but he did end up playing, although I'm not sure he was 100 percent. Debo did play. I don't think he was 100 percent either, but he looked good. He looked amazing. He looked like their best player. And Laporta looked great out there, to be honest. And uh, I was looking at, uh, not that we condone betting, but I was looking at the betting lines and the Laporta unders were being hammered pretty hard on a prop bet. And he beat those within like a quarter and a half. Like he, he had a quick start to the game. 
Well, the whole Lions had a quick start to the game. You had Montgomery taking chunks, Amon Ra, and was eating them up underneath. And if they start to choke up on Amon Ra, then Jamo was going over the top. I think Jamison Williams had two touchdowns in this game. 41 yard to start the game, and he caught the t- one yarder to end the game. Yep. They were, and just as important as that, they were getting defensive stops. When this game was close and the 49ers were trying to run it, Detroit has been a sneaky good run defense all year. And it was not good for the 49ers when the 49ers tried to do what the 49ers usually try to do, and that's start the game playing it in a phone booth. The Lions were winning that. And then halftime hit, and the Lions came out like it was 1999. And I'm and by that I mean they choked like a nineties Lions team. SOL. Well, I'm not gonna go that far, but it felt that way. It was that kind of a this would fit right in with those curse of Bobby Lane things. This is a game that Lions fans are never gonna forget. So let's break this down real quick. So I'm gonna go off the top of my head real quick. So the game start. The second half starts. This is the this is where the big breakdown comes, in my opinion. The Niners march on the field, score field goal to start. No reason for panic. You're up 14. The Lions answer with a drive into uh territory into, into field goal range. They forego the field goal attempt. I think this is the fourth and one that Josh Reynolds dropped, and then. Um, the Niners marched down the field. I believe I can't remember. I think this was the Ayuk catch. I think so. Where Purdy badly overthrows Ayuk. The ball ends up hitting. Um, I think it was Kindle Velder in the face mask. It bounce, bounces. That's the Lions' up. defensive back. Yep. It bounces up into the air, and Ayuk catches the ball for a fifty-yard gain that results in a touchdown. Then the very next drive, Jameer Gibbs immediately fumbles it. He ran the wrong way, but he still failed to secure the ball and fumbled the ball, sets up another touchdown quickly, and now it's a tie game. And now it's feeling very odd. Um, the uh, Lions still marched the ball down. We had another Josh Reynolds drop on a, th- I think this was a third down, right? Yeah, I mean, this was a about a eight-yard, ten-yard out route on third and six or seven. And it was on the hands, boom, drop. Okay, yep. And then the Niners uh, respond by going up by three with the field goal. The uh, Lions answer again. uh, Jared Goff drives the ball down again, fourth and three in field goal range. They could have tied. He gets pressured, and this is your nightmare scenario. He gets, he's running, he's Amon Ra's open. He he wings it to him and it bounce passes it to him. It doesn't quite make it there, but it was it it it, it was almost there. Um, and then the Niners march down, go up by ten. The game's basically over. Um, the Lions still march down. Third and goal. There's one more controversy because they still had all three timeouts. They choose to run, get stuffed, have to burn a timeout. Now it's the game is over on the onside kick. That was a very controversial call. And now we can break break this up into blame pie because we have the, the, the things that people are talking about. The two Josh Reynolds drops, the Jameer Gibbs fumble, uh, going for twice in field goal range, plus running the ball up the middle um, uh, on on third and one. Those are those three are, uh, are getting a lot of the lightning 
uh, and those are the lightning rods for most of the attention on Dan Campbell. So I want to ask you, Joe, as a Lions fan, what's your take? Let's start with the the big the, the headliner, um, Motor City Dan Campbell's decisions to be aggressive. Do you think that was too aggressive? Do you think he should have stayed within his character? And most of the time, those balls are caught like Josh Reynolds and the, the Lions win the game. What's your take? Yeah. Um, the, the fourth down it, when they had the chance to tie the game that needed to get kicked. All of the other decisions I'll live with. I can tell you locally, nobody or almost nobody is talking about the burn a timeout, uh, third down play. Really? That was big in the national media. We are not talking about that because at that point the game was already over because of all the other stuff. My blame pie is, first of all, the team didn't execute. Drops, interception off the face masks, uh, running the wrong way, fumbles. And these were not the only drops. There was another three, four, five crucial drops at different points. Goff does not get a slice of this blame pie. I 100% agree, because even in all these, he drove the ball into field goal range multiple times. Yeah. You can complain about the defense giving up five straight possessions to start the second Thank half. You. I with, forgot to bring that part. That's a big uh, With, you know, ending up in San Francisco points. One of stop, and it's a different game. Yeah, and I think they've technically made a stop at the end, but that doesn't really count, because that was just like a kneel down or, a, you know. <laughs> but yeah. The entire yeah. second half, they made zero stops, which is night and day from the first half where the defense yeah. was playing great. Which, you know, Brian, do me a quick favor here while I'm thinking about it, because this has been bothering me for a couple weeks now. We mentioned it a little bit on the podcast. What were the PFF grades on uh, Cam Sutton? Ooh, cornerback number that's, one. Yeah, that's a Lions cornerback. Usually they're number one. So I want to say this. We talked about this offseason acquisition because 2022, he was 71, which is 28th out of 118 graded cornerbacks. We thought it was a pretty good pickup. So that that 71 was his grade out of 100 by pro football focus. Yes. And this year, he ended up the 105th graded out of 127 with 52, which is the lowest in his career since his rookie year. A drop up of almost 20 points, which puts him very low. Yeah, for people who are not super familiar with Cam Sutton as a defensive player, uh, he's a really great, I call him a box corner because he's fantastic in run defense. He can He's physical. He can lock people down in the short yardage situation, but he was getting burned all the time uh, it, as soon as anybody was trying to go deep on him. And for some reason, and this is part of the coaching here, they just kept marching, matching him one on one against another team's alpha receiver. That giant CD Lamb game, that was Cam Sutton. That giant game against, you know, take your pick at the end of the year, Cam Sutton. Um, Mike Evans, uh, Justin Jefferson twice. Um, and, and to your point, his overall grade was 52. His coverage grade was worse. It was 49. And his because his overall grade was boosted by his 67 run grade, which is actually pretty good for a cornerback. But cornerbacks are paid to cover first, you know? Yeah. And I agree. If he's a cover to uh, zone underneath type guy, 
it is not advantageous to put him on an island like he's a you know man to man guy, and yes. that showed. I don't think. I th- to me, I guess my question for you next year: Do you think a schematic change would help fix this, or do you think it's time to move on from Cam and get a man to man type corner? Which well, you're not going to move on from Cam Sutton because they've got him for two more years at 11 million mm-hmm. a pop. Now I don't know. I haven't gone on Spot Track to see if there's a way out of that deal in a cap friendly kind mm-hmm. of way. But um, the problem to me isn't that he has that profile. The problem is the Lions have so many players with that profile. Good point. You know, there's CJ Gardner Johnson, who is a heck of a defensive back. You've got Cam uh, Sutton here. You've got Branch, who's basically a slot corner, box corner, bo- you know, box safety, that kind of mm-hmm. guy. You, the Lions, one of their big needs in free agency as we shift focus over to the postmortem needs to be everyone in the world is talking about we need a pass rusher opposite of Aiden Hutchinson and they do but they also need a defensive back that can cover down the field one-on-one we I I mean I we had one in the beginning of the year got hurt in week two and that was all she wrote Mm. but and maybe that fixes things if Cam Sutton is your number two and I, I just want to add one more thing uh, to the blame pie uh, before we move on to the fully onto the postmortem is we both picked the Lions to win. That pick looked pretty good for most of it, but we're focusing on what the Lions did. One of the big things that really caught me off guard and I think caught the Lions off guard was you mentioned it all year. The Lions defensive weakness is against scrambling quarterbacks. And Brock Purdy, out of nowhere, had multiple back-breaking runs on third down and long. I believe he ended up with 50 yards on the ground, which was about what Lamar Jackson had in the other AFC Championship game. So that was pretty impressive on Brock Purdy. And I think we have to give credit for uh, what the Niners did in the second half to overcome what the Lions were doing defensively in the first half to break them down. Yeah, I I really feel like, the struggles against uh, scrambling quarterbacks was because we never had anybody all year to set the edge on the side opposite Aiden Hutchinson. So whoever it was, was escaping the opposite end time and time and time again. And the only way that the lions were escaping that is if they blitzed and then you risk big plays on the back end, Mm -hmm. because we've talked about, this is not, a team that has a lot of players that can cover guys one-on-one down the field. So as we transition to this into the post-mortem, which I think is a perfect time to do it. Um, I, I think we've already hit it. My, my number one, I'm in that general majority you were talking about where I think getting a second pass rusher outside of uh, Hutchinson will make everything behind them look better. But I also agree with you, the cornerback matters. Cause I know if you're talking PFF stuff, they think cornerbacks matter more. And I think they, you know, obviously they work, in tandem, right? The better your pass rush, the less you have to cover. The better the coverage, the easier time your pass rushers get to the quarterback. So it sounds to me like the biggest needs for the Lions are both on defense. It is a pass rusher and a cornerback. And I probably cornerback and then pass rusher in that order. Is that what you think? 
I don't care what the order is. Okay. They're both important and they will, and they are both necessary and they will both help. Yeah. And I, I, th- I think it's more, I- I'm just going to say more, my opinion, you've kind of swung me on. I think the cornerback is more important because they have an elite tier one top, top tier pass rusher. I think they just need a complimentary pass rusher. He doesn't have to be a pin his ears, go get pressure. He can be one of those run stuff for guys that can also get pressure. He just needs to be able to be, you know, when make wins when uh Hutchinson is double teamed, you know, or pressures the quarterback the other way. I think yeah. those are easier to find than the pure fifteen sack guys, you know. Yeah, they don't need Strahan on one end and Jason Pierre Paul on the other. Yeah. And I, I think that that's a little easier to find the complimentary piece than it is to find a uh number one overall run cornerback. Because the cornerbacks take a couple of years to develop. Uh, they usually hit years two or three. So finding them through the draft will be harder, but to get them on the, they're very expensive as free agents and they're yeah, also very volatile. That also means that you can get them a little more affordably in the draft. So that might be a good place to go for the first round pick. If you can get, you're not going to find another sauce gardener, but you might, we've seen that you can find a cornerback that can have success one-on-one in the late first or early second round. And that's where the lions are going to be picking. Yeah. And I think they're also an interesting one, a shrewd uh, GM, which Brad Holmes is, they can be good at dumpster diving for uh, free agents because the cornerbacks tend to be the most volatile year to year. I'm doing an up and down motion with my hand on the zoom that the podcasters can't see good podcasting. I know um, where you get a guy who was good two years ago, maybe had some injury concerns, nagging injury, or maybe he was in the wrong scheme, and you get him on a cheap contract and you reclaim him. I know the, the team opposite of the Lions, the Niners have been known for reclaiming guys like these. They're good one-year patches. They tend to, if they succeed, they get paid a lot of money and they usually leave. But it's another option. I would personally go, I like I like your take, is uh, go for one of the draft, but also try to find a bargain bin and throw. You can never have enough cornerbacks. You play three or four most sets in the, today's NFL. So getting a bunch of Bs is just as good as having a couple 1A and a bunch of C pluses. Might even be better, you know? This is, and Dan Campbell had the ominous words after the game, that this was the Lions' best shot. It's going to be twice as hard next year. And all you have to do for that is look at the schedule. And look at the Eagles. They were a young team last year when they made the Super Bowl. So Yeah, but the different we do have one thing on going for us over the Eagles, though, and that's we get to keep our offensive coordinator, Ben Johnson. <sighs> Breaking news for the record for as of today, like a couple hours ago. Go on. Ben Johnson for the second straight year took himself out of consideration for head coaching jobs. It's being reported in Detroit that he turned the Washington Commanders job down flat. So here's a quote from a, a tweet from Warren Sharp, uh, pro football better 2022 Ben Johnson interviewed with Houston, Carolina, Indianapolis, and state 2023. He interviewed with Washington, Seattle, Atlanta, the chargers and Carolina and chose to stay. So I got to say for anybody who's upset with uh, the aggression or overaggression that might quote cost the lions for macho man, Danny Campbell, he, whatever he's doing, he's keeping a, uh, that's eight head coaching jobs that Ben Johnson has decided, oh, you know, I'm going to go do the X's and O's for the Lions for another year. That's or they went with somebody else in some of those cases. but True. But as you were saying, the was- it was not a secret that Washington really wanted Ben Johnson, and they were basically holding their breath for the last week or two to get him. 
And then he, you know, decided second year in a row, Carolina wanted him. Uh, and he said, I don't want to go the, the crazy new owner syndrome guy. And then this year he said the same thing with another crazy new owner syndrome guy. Uh, both for those who don't know, Washington and Carolina are the two teams with the newest owners and they tend to have a little growing pains of their own <laughs> to say it like, yeah. Oh, usually oh, new owners tend to want to stick their fingers in everything and make a big splash until they realize they're not football guys and learn how to defer it. Right. Exactly. Uh, big win for the Lions. Yeah. And big loss for the NFC North. <sighs> wow. You just had to go there, didn't you? I guess I won't get my Amon Ross St. Brown jersey with that kind of shots fired. <laughs> well, I mean, you want the Lions schedule? <laughs> if the Lions can... Oh, yeah. I mean, Sorry, we didn't get to that. I, I sidetracked it. Go, for, go hit up the schedule. All right. Now, we don't know uh, exactly what week, what games are being played and when. But here are the teams that the Lions have to play next year. Home against the Rams, against Seattle, against Jacksonville, um, against Tampa, against Buffalo. Road again, on the it's road the again. So I said, that's just the home slate. Those are five all winning teams with winning records, non-divisional. And then you also have the upstart Packers and Bears. Yeah, I, was, I wasn't even going to mention the division <laughs> guys till the very end. Okay. So You've also going. got road games against uh again besides the division they are at houston at indianapolis at san francisco at dallas <laughs> how how they don't play against like a bad team they must have like the titans in there or something well, right? oh, yeah the they, they okay. do have for, they do That's... have they do at the they are at the cardinals wow they do have okay the titans that's oh basically it. That is brutal. Like they basically have uh, 15, well, 13, if you don't include the Vikings as a great team that more on that in the off season, um, at least 13 really tough teams of winning records, or at least hot streaks at the end of the season. Yeah. If the lions brutal. can get back to the NFC championship game with that schedule, mm-hmm. that's a celebration. Yeah. And I will caveat, the schedule strengths tend to change as the season goes on, but we're working with what we, with what we know now. And these were 13 teams with very good to great winning yeah. records. So yeah, that's all a tough of these schedule. teams, the lions will play of their 17 games, all but four or six of them, depending upon whether you count the Vikings were in the playoffs with two weeks to go or were in the <laughs> discussion live. Yeah. I know what you're saying. That is crazy. That is just a crazy hard stat. Yeah. We're not kidding when we say it's going to be a lot harder for the Lions, who are not going to sneak up on anybody next year. So it's going to take another really good draft for the Lions to uh, continue to do what we, in Detroit at least, hope they do. So to me, so the Lions regular season, I think they were 12-5, and right? Regular season record. To me, if they finish this season 10 or 11 wins, it's a step backwards record-wise, but I don't think that's a step backwards. Oh, not at all. Based on what we know. So just, you know, I'm already, I know we're going to forget about this a year from now, but I just think that 10 wins are better making the playoffs. They are more seasoned to make the just as good of a run or better next year. So, you know, so I I think that's an interesting schedule breakdown. That's brutal. Do you have any that schedule thoughts? is ludicrous. 
Yeah. Do you have any last thoughts as we head into the off season, or do you want to get onto? Uh... We'll do a little. Well, before we hit the the off season, let's let's talk just a little bit about what we expect to see in the Super Bowl. We're not going to break this down to any great degree, but you know, just kind of what are your thoughts now that we know the matchup? I'm going to start off with one of my favorite memes, and I think it was a mobster uh, torturing another guy, where it's just uh, Kansas City and uh, Chiefs logo, um, Kansas City and uh, San Francisco logo is holding the. Uh, face of a guy in a Raiders hat making him look at it and the meme just says Raiders fans watching the 49ers and Chiefs pay- get painted on their end zone because <laughs> right. the, the Super Bowl's in Las Vegas and there's a lot of history between the Chiefs and the Raiders and also the Raiders and the Niners who shared Oakland and San Francisco for years so it's pretty funny that this Super Bowl is like the biggest slap in the face of the home team ever outside of like maybe like if the Eagles were to win a Super Bowl in Dallas or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, so, Super, yeah, Super Bowl 40 was the only playoff game played in Ford Field until this year, so. Yeah, didn't they say that the uh, only people with a playoff win in Detroit are Jared Goff and Ben Roethlisberger? If, and that's if you want to count the Super Bowl as that's a playoff Bowl game, yeah. Yeah, because obviously Roethlisberger playing for the AFC never played in Detroit. Um, so, yeah, so – my my basic thoughts is I think the Niners are somewhere between a two and a half to one and a half or one point lead, uh, favorite over the Chiefs early on. I've seen all three of those. Um, and it's interesting because it's Pat Mahomes versus Mr. Relevant Brock Purdy. So if you want to like just break down the quarterbacks, um, you'd have to take the Chiefs, right? <laughs> But no, because really no, because Brock Purdy is the second coming of Tom Brady. Remember? Oh, that's a good point. But then so is Mahomes. Interesting. Although Mahomes has actually played like it with six straight NFC Championship appearances, yeah. going winning four of them. Yeah. <laughs> going yeah. Other third, than the Super Lions, Bowl, who but... made him look like Tom Brady for most of this year. I'm sorry, because let's let's make some enemies here. But we're Midwestlanders. Brock Purdy is the kid that did nothing for the group project except present it. <laughs> And I want to take this time to thank friend of the podcast, Chris Branley, for doing those logos. He is an avid Niners fans, and uh, we are about to crap all over your team and your quarterback. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But no, you're right. No, Brock Purdy, he's done a great job managing, and we've seen a lot of Kyle Shanahan quarterbacks do this, you know, and we've seen guys like C.J. Beathard have great stats and stuff. But you know what? I give him credit. He's got the job done. They came back from behind and all that two weeks in a row, which is a big thing. We did not think the Niners were built to come back from come from behind, and they've done it twice in a row in the playoffs. Um, It's going to be very hard to do it against the Chiefs defense, which is much better than a Joe Barry-led defense or a Aiden Hutchinson and friends, you know, type defense, in my opinion. The the moment was, I hate to say it, the moment was too big for the Lions. Kansas City is battle-tested and are not going to choke that way. Yeah. And and just at a high level, this is very interesting because, you know, we talked about the Chiefs. This is their fourth Super Bowl in six years under the Pat Mahomes era, Pat Mahomes, Andy Reid era, which has basically literally taken over for the uh, Belichick Brady, to be honest. I mean, in fact, one of his last losses was to Brady when he played for Tampa in the Super Bowl. Um, Uh, Just as, as a quick aside here, the, you know, I think part of the reason for that is the only formula that so many teams are using to try and build their teams is the, we have the best quarterback in the world model, 
where we're going to pay our quarterback the world. We're going to get one offensive lineman. We're going to get one big target. We're going to build our defense and we'll beat everybody that way because our quarterback is the best. Well, guess what team's not building that way? 49ers. Mm-hmm. They're given this, I they're given their quarterback every single tool that you can possibly get. They're giving him the nuclear briefcase. So it's I think it's a very interesting matchup that's especially when the Niners have the ball because the Chiefs defense is so good. And but I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, keep, I was just going to add uh, yes and that because I think you brought up a great point because what I like about this Super Bowl matchup is the team building strategy is you have the old school, we have the best quarterback, we're going to pay him like, and then the opposite way. Because one of the reasons why the Chiefs win so much is because they have the best quarterback. So whenever they play other teams that try to pretend they have the best quarterback and pay their quarterback like the best quarterback, they don't. So they have an advantage. Yeah, Yeah, that's the reason why you had to pay Daniel Jones $40 million is because they're trying to follow this model and the quarterback prices as a result have gotten so unbelievably skewed. It's the NBA thing. Every team has to fill their not max slot contract, but not everybody has LeBron James. And then they don't beat LeBron James and they wonder why, because they're just trying to go star for star. And I think that's why I like the Niners build is because they pivoted and just said, hey, we don't have a quarterback, so... Actually, we had a guy who's done pretty well as a seventh round pick and let's give him the world because we pay him almost nothing and we can. And I think it'll be make, make for an interesting Super Bowl. I think from the actual X's and O's, I think that the Niners and Christian McCaffrey are going to run on the Chiefs or at least try in a way that Baltimore didn't. You're going to see more than six carries to the running back. So I think McCaffrey is going to have a good day. And um, that's what this plays into the Niners' strength, who they want to lean on the run game and let uh, Purdy do play action passes underneath the Kittle and Debo and, and McCaffrey, and then occasionally take a shot downfield to Ayuk. And I think from that perspective, the Niners' offense versus the Chiefs' defense, it actually, as good as the Chiefs' defense has played, I think this is actually a pretty well schematic offense to attack the Chiefs' weaknesses. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree, because most teams with have a big alpha receiver that they want to line up and try to beat somebody with or beat two guys with or beat three guys with or whatever. And the Chiefs are set up very, very well to try and nullify that kind of an offense. But the 49ers have two guys that can beat you as a wide receiver if you try to go run on one. And they're going to motion both of them everywhere to the point that one of them might not even be in the wide receiver position when they're done. Oh, and then they have a tight end of running back who might be a lot of teams wide receiver one <laughs> based on yeah. catching talent. Yeah. And just for the record, no, we are not going to break down the Pro Bowl. <laughs> but I will be there, so um, mm-hmm. it'll be interesting. So I have already told my Bears friends, buddies, that I will, in uh, five days as of recording this podcast, I will have been to just as many Pro Bowls as Mitchell Trubisky. Yes, well, sometimes it's not how good you are. Sometimes it's how many people in front of you bail out. <laughs> the famous meme where it's a picture of him, uh, Mahomes and Watson, you know, cause they're all the same draft class. Like the bears won that draft pick too. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh, but, you know, speaking of winning, this has been a winner of a season here for the Midwest football podcast. This is our season finale. So we are 
going to be uh, going on hiatus after this episode. As far as we're concerned, there's no Midwest teams left, so the season's over. Now, what that means for you, our gentle listeners, is first of all, you're going to want to turn on notifications so that when we do drop a podcast, which we're going to continue to do, that you get it as quick as reasonably possible. So you can uh, never be out of the loop here, but we are not going to do it every week. We're not going to do it regular in the off season. Uh, and they also might be a different format. So we might hit one topic in great detail, or we might discuss say all the coaching changes in the aggregate when that finally figures out. Look for us to definitely discuss the draft coming when that starts coming up also. And we might have a couple more historical stories, you know, like when Joe did the curse of Bobby Lane and we might do some more what ifs because I think those are a lot of fun. Yeah. So you're going to get a lot of different kinds of content. If you want to say in what kinds of things you want us to do this offseason, definitely hit us up with the email Midwest football podcast at gmail.com and make sure you mention what, who your favorite team is so that we can continue to talk about the teams that matter to the people who actually listen to us. That's important too. We want to be your show and your first place for NFL analysis and news. But as we finish up this season with so many thanks, so many thanks to all of our hundreds and uh, more of listeners from all over what shocked me, not just the country, but the world who have become Midwest landers with us and listen to our podcast. Thank you so much for giving us your time this NFL season. Uh, as always, thank you to uh, Raymond for our intro and outro music. Thank you to Chris Branley for our logos. Brian, you got anything to add here before we uh, take it to the locker room? Yeah, and I just want to say it was our as this completes our first year of podcasting as a team. This has been a great year, a banner year for both the fans and our teams. Most of the teams in the Midwest had great years and had a lot of stuff going for them, and a lot of stuff to look forward to next year. And for this season, and for the fans, and for the podcast, I miss you already. Time to take it into the locker room for that fifth quarter, and we'll see you later.